you may remember we were doing a survey through the Old Testament, and we were going one book at a time each week, and there were some books that would take two weeks or some that would take a week and a half, but for the most part, we were able to do about a book a week. And we got all the way through the uh, the Pentateuch, and we got through the um, historical books, and we got through the wisdom literature, and now we come to the last major section of the Old Testament, which is the prophets. And you may know the prophets are divided into what two sections? Majors and the minors. Anybody know why they're called that? Simply the length of the book. The major ones were on major size scrolls. The minor ones were on minor size scrolls. The content is equally important. The message you'll find is actually quite similar across many of the, the prophets, but the terms major and minor simply refer to the size of the books. So we're going to try to survey both of them. I may, um, I have a special love for the minor prophets, so at some point along the way, once we finish the major prophets, I may take a moment, uh, maybe half of an evening to pause and, and kind of summarize the minor prophets once we get there. We'll, we'll see it in a, in a glimpse tonight. Um, but sometimes when we hear the word prophecy, we start thinking of um, really, um, how do I put it, horoscopic type things. You, you start to think, okay, well, we need to start piecing together. What does this head mean? What does that face mean? Who was that part of that statute? Is that referring to this you know, uh, leader in this part of the world today? Um, and there are various interpretations of how you should go about interpreting when these prophecies were fulfilled in, um, in history. Now, um, I am of the persuasion that most of the historic prophecies um, have taken place um, at some point um, after the prophets predicted. Uh, most of them at this point are complete. There are some that remain incomplete, including Christ's return, which is a very clear um, prophecy that is yet to, to, um, to come. But we're going to see that there's a really big difference between looking for forth-telling versus foretelling. I don't think this is on your handout. Um, forth telling is the announcement of imminent divine judgment in the present or in the near future. So think about Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And many of the prophets, well, many, there were a few prophets who who really targeted Samaria saying, hey, you are so sinful, you need to watch out for God's divine judgment that's coming against you. And so there were these images of this judge judgment that was going to come. That is called forthtelling. It's an announcement of imminent divine judgment in the present or in the near future because they had been unfaithful to the covenant, which is something we're going to get into. Versus, that's forthtelling versus foretelling, um, which we would say is a prediction about the future. Now, there are definitely some predictions about the future in the prophets. but And so what we think sometimes is what we need to do is decode the prophets. And that sort of foretelling approach to the Old Testament misses what most or what I would say all of the prophets were really trying to communicate to their listeners at, this, at one time. So let me give you an off-the-chart example of bad interpretation of prophecy. So you've heard the mark of the beast. Um, 
I don't, I should know this. I don't exactly know why 666 has been called the mark of the beast. Is that actually in scripture somewhere? Is that in Daniel? Um, it's okay. It might be in Revelation. Either one of those apocalyptic sources. Now, apocalyptic literature is is a unique thing in and of itself within prophecy that that we'll spend some time looking at. But um, so there's this one um, group of people who will go to conventions and they set up a table that is basically uh, saying that the um, the company Monster Energy Drinks is owned by Satan. Um, does this sound familiar? Have you heard this? Okay. <laughs> Um, because if you look at the logo of the M, it's, it's three lines that are up and down. Each one has a little tag at the top. That is the Hebrew letter Vav, which is the sixth letter of their alphabet. And so you got Vav, 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 six, 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 the M therefore is the mark of the beast. Therefore, this is Satan's company and you cannot drink monster energy drinks. Okay, is that really what the prophets had in mind? <laughs> I mean, do you really think that's the, the message we're supposed to receive? That's reading the Bible horoscopically. And of course, that's an extreme example. Um, comments? No, I just okay, okay. horoscope. Okay, yes. Face word. Yeah, yeah, horoscope is the base word. Yes, thank you. Uh, I did not make that clear. Um, <laughs> yes, so, so the way that we approach reading the prophets should not be trying to decode secret hidden messages in the text. God's word has been written for messages to be plain and to be understood. And especially when we start to understand what these prophets are saying to the people in their day, we're going to be able to understand better what these texts are conveying. So let, let's uh, look here at the handout, and there will be opportunity to pause along the way and to spend more time on some of these things. But um, let's look here. The prophets in canonical order, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you have the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, Hosea, and onward down to Malachi. So you can see the chapter divisions there. Uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets lived largely during the divided kingdom, the exile, and the post-exile eras. That is about 800 to 430 BC. So if you see the bottom there, there's a timeline. This timeline came from Matt Bradley. Uh, you see the pre-exile. Uh, those are the days that precede the exile. The exile is when Israel, um, specifically the southern kingdom of Israel, was um, sent into the lands of Babylon during their, their conquering of the, air, of the land. Uh, and then they return 70 years later, and then you have the post-exilic, also known as the Second Temple Period, uh, in which the uh, Israelites were back in the land of Israel. And you can see the major prophets there in their timeline. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is actually right there with Jeremiah because it is um, believed that Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, the... Um, yeah, and then Ezekiel and then Daniel. So that kind of shows just the timeline of when they uh, existed. So a lot of them during the um, exile and post-exilic period. Isaiah was earlier along with, you can see on the bottom right, a bunch of the minor prophets. Hosea, Amos, maybe Jonah, um, Micah as well. So those are some of the earlier ones, who some of whom were contemporaries with Isaiah. And so I did not... Um, take the time to put every single minor prophet on that chart there. Um, but also, I did give you a second handout. This one right here. Did y'all get one of these as well? Um, this has more detail. You're welcome. 
This has more detail about the order and the timing of the prophets. So on the far right column, it gives you who is prophesying alongside whom and um, what their message is. So uh, the FI would be the, um, the pre-fall of Israel. And then you see um, Hosea and Amos were in the northern kingdom. You have Isaiah and Micah in the southern kingdom. The bold ones are simply the minor prophets. Uh, this is a handout I used for a minor prophets um, class before. That's why the, they're in, in bold. So Isaiah and Micah um, were pre-fall of Israel in the south. Uh, FJ would be the pre-fall of Judah, so leading up to Babylon taking over Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. So, of course, there's no northern prophet at that time because the northern kingdom had been exiled. So those were all southern prophets as well, which means you only have three northern prophets, Jonah, Hosea, and Amos, uh, which is just an interesting um, an interesting tidbit and helps you understand when you're reading them what's, what's going on given their context. <clears throat> Um, that's point two there on the historical notes. The audience is largely Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom, with Hosea, Amos, and Jonah as the only prophets to the northern kingdom. Um, so in contrast with our modern understanding of prophecy as a type of horoscope, horoscopic horoscope endeavor, the ancient Near Eastern, that is A&E people, including the Hebrew people, viewed prophets as those who spoke as the mouths of their God. So they were not... Um, soothsayer types they were more speaking on behalf of god so when prophets spoke people listened because they believed it was god speaking through them and of course there were consequences for being a false prophet namely death and so um there absolutely were false prophets uh and they were not um they were not all put to death uh, because the people that they were speaking to were um, just as corrupt as they were and really just wanted to hear what they wanted to hear um, but uh, there are two things that I find most helpful when I'm reading through the prophets. Two things to remember that were the goals of the biblical prophets. One, they were covenant prosecutors, and two, they spoke God's words. One, they were covenant prosecutors. Two, they spoke God's words. So I'm not good on the whole courtroom stuff. Um, I wish Andrew were here. He could help explain some of the, you know, the courtroom stuff as a, as a lawyer. Prosecutor is the one who brings charges, and accusations against, um, you know, someone who they say is wronged them, right? So what the prophets do is they are bringing charges and accusations against the people of Israel for violating the covenant with God. That is largely their function in the life of the people of Israel. Is they're saying, you have failed in this way, in this way, in this way, and these are the consequences you're going to get as a result. There are three words that I forgot to put on this page that I highly encourage you to write down on the bottom right in that little gap. I call them the big three when you're looking at prophetic literature. The big three. Number one is sin. Number two is punishment. And number three is restoration. Sin Punishment, restoration. These are the three themes, big themes. And in my experience, most, if not every um, pericope, which is a fancy word for a literary unit or a paragraph, most literary units in the prophets, if not all of them, are either about sin or punishment or restoration. 
So these big three help you understand the role of the covenant prosecutors. Uh, the prophets came and they, speaking on behalf of God, this is God warning his people, listen, you are stuck in sin. Or he's going to come and say, all right, since you are stuck in the sin, the next part of maybe the, you know, Amos's writings, for example, would be here is the punishment you deserve for your hypocritical worship. So sin is the hypocritical worship. The punishment is you're going to be exiled. But then there's always a promise of restoration. Almost always. I think there's one book without, without uh, hope. Um, which even that is overstating it. It's either Nahum or Zephaniah. I don't remember which one. I think it's Nahum. Um, but as covenant prosecutors, they're reminding the people, hey, listen, you're in covenant with God and here's what God requires of you and you have failed. And the, one of the famous ones is, what does the Lord require of you? Can somebody finish that? But to... To love mercy. Yes. Walk humbly with your God. I think we can all get the verbs and the uh, subjects in there. We just can't always get them in the right combinations. <laughs> yeah, Micah six eight. That's right. Um, so go ahead and open up to Hosea four. Anybody know off the top of your head what Hosea is uh, famous uh, for being about? Yeah, Luke. That's exactly it. Hosea and Gomer are uh, an illustration of God and Israel. Gomer, a prostitute, wild, faithless, um, and Hosea, the steadfast one, who loved Gomer anyway. Uh, which is an, an incredible image of God's love for Israel. So I look forward to getting to uh, Hosea with you here in a few, uh, probably in a, yeah, probably about six lessons or so. The question is whether our series will be interrupted again before then, but I'll keep you posted. Um, Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. Um <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Um, we're going to have to come back to this one in a, in a minute because this is a fantastic example of one of these types of oracles, of a lawsuit oracle. Here the Lord is bringing the controversy. Here is the prosecution. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then it, it continues on from there. But when you read those first accusations in verses 1 and 2, what do they sound like? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. And it exactly is the Ten Commandments at the foundation of this accusation because those Ten Commandments, which serve as the uh, the moral law for God's people who live in covenant with him, they have violated them. And so Hosea is coming and saying, you have broken God's law. He doesn't have to give a list and say, according to the Ten Commandments, you violated this and this and this. The people understand the foundation. They know that these Ten Commandments um, are the operative moral law in their uh, proper response to living in covenant with God. And he is saying, you have broken it. 
So verse 2 especially is loaded. Verse 1, I think, um, really gets at the first couple commandments. There is no knowledge of God in the land. You can't keep the first four commandments if you don't know who your God is. And then it goes on to the second half of the Ten Commandments, with, which deals with loving your neighbor. And that's where verse 2 comes in. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, and bloodshed. And so Hosea, as a covenant prosecutor, is bringing charges against God's people for failing to obey. And they spoke about social and they spoke about spiritual conditions of Israel. So here's a little bit of bonus information for you. I really printed out this chart for you because I like the right column. But let me go ahead and point out to you also the third and fourth and fifth columns. So the function, audience, and message. This is something you can look at later. But most of our prophets are not in the pre-monarchy or pre-classical time period. They're in the classical or exilic or post-exilic time periods. Um, there were prophets earlier, Moses, Deborah, Samuel, uh, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, and Micaiah uh, are some examples from the earlier days. And, and Moses was a very different kind of prophet because he was a leader who spoke to the people and gave national guidance, and he was a spiritual overseer. Then you move down to the type of prophecy prophets going on here in the classical period with uh, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, and on and on. These are the mouthpiece, of course, of God. You, see, you notice each one is a mouthpiece of God, specifically as a social or spiritual commentator speaking to the people. And the message of these classical prophets is largely rebuke concerning the current condition of society, and it leads to warning of captivity, destruction, exile, and the promise of eventual restoration. And there's often a call for justice and repentance. So that is uh, largely what these covenant prosecutors are about. You can tell by the disaster of the society, the disaster in their hearts. And that they have failed to worship their God. You can see it in that they have failed to love their neighbors. They have failed to care for others. And so there is no... Um, Vital faith in the middle. Second, so that's the, the prophets were covenant prosecutors. The other thing that's really helpful for me is remembering the prophets speak God's message. They're not trying to make stuff up. They're not trying to uh, originate new things. Uh, they're not inventing messages. They were called by God and they carried his word. And that's why we see so often, thus says the Lord. Even in Hosea 4, 1, here the word of the Lord is how it opens. These prophets know that they're not trying to speak for themselves. They're trying, they are speaking on behalf of God who inspired them to speak. Questions about the um, kind of the function of prophets broadly uh, before we get into some of these literary notes. <clears throat> Is this enlightening at all? Um, to me, the covenant prosecutor piece was a big light. Oh, that makes so much sense about why they're speaking so much sin and punishment and restoration. Um, because it shows you uh, that God's covenant is still active, even 1,500 years later. They're accused of their sin, but the covenant blessings and the covenant curses, uh, the, the punishment, they're still there because this covenant is still in, in force. And, um, but that restoration that's promised just shows that that covenant of grace underlying it all is still there and that God is still seeking to be gracious and still will be gracious. <clears throat> okay, you got me preaching now. Sorry. Um, other thoughts before we move on to the literary notes? 
Okay, if you want to really dive into some specific passages as you're reading through the prophets, these uh, these types of oracles will be really helpful. Now, this is not exhaustive. This is not even um, always the exact rubric that every passage follows, but if you can know these mostly four oracles with a the five the fifth one is more of a um a qualifier uh those first four types of oracles you can see them first of all on the middle of the horizontal the landscape um handout and then also they get their own page in the supplementary handout uh, that is um the portrait orientation there so the lawsuit oracle in a lawsuit oracle god is the plaintiff who's bringing the case to court He's the prosecuting attorney, he's the judge, and he's the bailiff that is the bookkeeper in a court case against Israel. The covenant lawsuits include a summons. That means the court convenes. And typically, the, uh, the prophet will say, um, hear the Lord, or come before the Lord, or um, something along those lines. So that's kind of the, the summons. Uh, there's an accusation, there is an, there's evidence, and there's a verdict. So uh, go ahead and flip over to Isaiah 3. No. Don't flip yet. If you're still in Hosea 4, let's look at Hosea 4 first. Um, Hosea 4, 1a is the summons. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Basically saying, I'm suing you. And that is, um, that's what 4, 1a is, is. That is the summons. The accusation is the next part you would look for in a lawsuit oracle. And the accusations begin, and the list goes all the way through the end of verse 2. And the evidence comes in verse 3. All right, so the, the accusations, the, here's what you have done. There's no faithfulness, there's no steadfast love, there's no knowledge of God and land, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. How do you know it? Where's the evidence? Look at verse 3. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Sometimes that's, um, that part is not so clear. In Isaiah 3, it's more implied. The evidence is clear right there. Look look at what's happened. You have destroyed this place by your sin. Yes? So I've had some discussions, say, with my grandpa about this because uh, he tends to lean more directly on, like, uh, these specific sins that people are specifically doing are specifically... Uh, like causing drought or sending the birds away or things like that. And I tend to come down on a more uh, consequential perspective. Like the consequences of your actions are creating an environment that uh, um, are is destroying your environment. So like... Yeah. Adultery specifically is not causing the fish to up and leave, <laughs> but the types of societies that foster are okay with all of these things are the same types of societies that are okay with dumping toxic chemicals in your river or this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, so um, I would I would uh, definitely agree with both you and your grandpa, which is fair because. <laughs> We know specific cases that are inspired by God in Scripture where specific sins have led to specific consequences. So that happens. 
I don't think that we today have the ability where we don't live in a theocracy. I don't think we have the ability to say well, this specific thing is causing this specific thing right here. We can speculate. We can say, all right, maybe there's a relationship here. Sometimes it's more, um, I don't know, what what are the terms people use? It's not necessarily causation. It's really, I don't know. Correlation. Correlation. Yeah, there you go. Correlation, not causation. Sure. Um, also, if, and we, we saw this even with Jesus, it's not specifically this man's sin or his parents' sins that made him to be born blind. Um, it is uh, so that God could show his glory through him. So these consequences that we see, some of these things that we would naturally say, oh, that's because I I messed this up. Or if I do this, I'm afraid God's going to strike me dead. Or if if I really am just like a a bad kid, God's going to make me be a missionary to Africa. And so these these cause and effect things um, that that we run, I don't think those understand how God operates. Uh, because God, if he ever were to give every sin what it deserved, none of us would be breathing. And so the fact that he already operates with grace and patience um, makes this not a one-to-one rule that we can take from the inspired words of the prophets and try to do today. Um, So can we say that Hurricane Katrina was the direct result of their wickedness? No. We can speculate and say maybe that God was trying to get their attention. We know God was getting the attention of his people because he uses everything for his good in a situation like that. But is it, was it specific you know, um, places that were open on certain streets that caused you know, the, the levees to break? I, I don't think we have the authority or the insight or the godly knowledge to know that. Um, <clears throat> I feel like Job is pretty clear, like the ending... Or a lot of kind of response to everything is we ultimately can't fathom how God works. It seems like it in our eyes, but his wisdom is so beyond our understanding that we can try to grasp it, but we're ultimately going to be left with our own answers, which could be false. Yeah. And be wrong in God's eyes. So. Yeah, no, that's good. I think the Job contribution is also really helpful. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, so there's, there's just one example of the lawsuit oracle. Let's, we're not going to go over to Isaiah 3. Uh, but if you wanted to look at that, you could. <clears throat> a woe oracle. Let's open to Habakkuk 2. If you ever want to learn the song that helps me remember the minor prophets in order, I can teach you once we get there. Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 8. In a woe oracle, it's typically going to be... Um, You'll be cued by the word woe. It's the word that the Israelites used uh, when facing disaster, death, or when they were in mourning. Uh, Woe oracles make the promised doom imminent. Woe oracles include an announcement of distress, uh, the reason for distress, and a prediction of doom. So Habakkuk 2, get ready for some cheery reading. Verse 6, shall not... All these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him. Okay, it starts with woe. That gives you a good clue. This is a war oracle. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. 
Um, so here you have an announcement of distress. This comes in 6a, this announcement of woe. Woe to him um, who heaps up what is not his own. The reason for distress um, is because, you see in verses 6 and verse 8, Babylon is a thief and an extortionist. They've plundered many nations. They have um, taken what is not their own. And then there is a prediction of doom where it says in verse 8, um, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. So there's this prediction that you too will be facing this doom that you have been uh, doling out toward others. And Habakkuk 2, I'm not using it as any sort of special um, case that you know makes any great point. It's just a literary example here of a woe oracle. <clears throat> then there's the promised salvation oracle. Uh, these oracles include mentions of the future, of radical change, of blessing, according to the covenantal categories mentioned, life and health and prosperity and agricultural abundance and respect and safety. Some of those things we, um, we saw Israel getting to partake of uh, as they entered into the promised land and immediately they were getting these agricultural blessings. That's all connected right here to this uh, promise and salvation oracle that had been already um, prophesied uh, in earlier parts of the Bible promised in earlier parts of the, the um, Pentateuch. So um, flip over to Amos 9. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Amos chapter 9. Amos is a really severe book. Amos chapter 9 starts with the destruction of Israel but then finally, in the last five verses, there is the restoration. The sin and the punishment dominate most of Amos, and then finally there's a little bit of restoration right here at the end. But it's powerful. Amos 9, verse 11, starts with, in that day. So this is the future looking. This is already saying, look, look ahead. Something's going to come uh, in that day. And then what's going to happen in that day? Well, there's going to be radical change. From what is from how things are right now, what is God going to do in Amos nine eleven? I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What a beautiful promise that the one from the line of David, the king whose kingdom will never fade. It looks like this. Um, it says it's called the booth of David. I think that's um, that's a, a fine translation, but it, it's basically saying the shack of David. It used to be a grand um, throne room and a grand kingdom, but now it's just a booth on the wayside. Um, but God says, I'm going to restore that because of the promise that he had made to the line of Judah and to David that the, the kingdom would never leave um, and that his descendants would be on the throne forever, specifically that um, branch from the stump of Jesse. That Jesus would come. So God says, I will raise, a, raise up what has been fallen. What has fallen, I will repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. He's promising that he's going to bring salvation, as he had promised before from the line of David. 
Uh, and there are other examples of radical change in verses um, 12 and 14 and 15. And then the blessing comes throughout. Um, uh, health in particular is implied throughout verses 11 through 15, but then also crops, especially the agricultural blessing in verse 13. Uh, <clears throat> questions about the promise for salvation oracle? Okay, and then lastly, the enactment prophecy. These are less uh, common. Enactment prophecies include an action on the part of the prophet that accompanies and illustrates the message God gave them. Hosea could be that in, in many ways as the one who married Gomer, the prostitute, as an illustration of God's love for wayward Israel. Isaiah 20 is one where it says Isaiah walked around stripped. Uh, strip and exile are the same word in Hebrew for three years to show what Assyria will do to Egypt and to Cush. Uh, so you see Isaiah enacting uh, the message that he was also preaching. Ezekiel's famous for that, right? Yes. That's yes, I believe so. I believe so. Ezekiel is the one that is still really fuzzy to me because it's so just off the charts. <clears throat> yeah. And lastly, you have the messenger speech, which you'll notice is not called an oracle uh, on the handout. Uh, it, it simply is just saying, hey, is this oracle, one that starts with thus says the Lord, is the prophet claiming to be speaking as a messenger of God or not? And it could be, any of them could be messenger speeches. It's kind of like a, an additional uh, checkbox if you're looking to try to figure out what kind of text you're looking at. We're not going to recap the parallelisms because what we found in, um, in the poetry uh, and in the, the writing section of uh, the Old Testament is pretty similar here uh, with the prophets because they used poetry for many of their uh, forms of communication. So you can just look there. Synonymous, antithetical, and synthetic parallelisms with some examples from the prophets. <clears throat> okay. Let's, um, let's f fly through this next section because we've already hit a lot of it. And then uh, we'll be done here with our introduction. The major and the minor prophets are called such because of the length of their scrolls. The minor prophets have always been found together, hence the common title, the Book of the Twelve. So we've actually never found just a scroll of Obadiah. It's always been with the other twelve, uh, the, the other of the twelve. Lamentations is placed with the major prophets because its author is likely Jeremiah. Uh, Lamentations is unique in that it doesn't have as much of those sin, punishment, restoration um, oracles as the rest of them. It seems in some senses to be um, more of a writing, um, but since it belongs to uh, Jeremiah, it's coupled right here with his prophecy as well. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations are primarily composed as poetry, though there are exceptions of prose. Ezekiel is almost entirely prophetic prose. <clears throat> Daniel is mostly prose as well. The first half of the book in a uh, primarily in narrative form, and the second half being primarily prophetic, apocalyptic. And that apocalyptic um, is, is something we'll address when we get to those those sections. The content of the minor prophets can be generally traced as a plotline with an introduction. Hosea and Joel, you can see that on that um, that slide right below with the title of the Book of the Twelve. Hosea and Joel kind of introduce what's going on. Uh, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah talk about the complications. Specifically, they trace Israel's sin. So they focus on sin. 
in Israel's sin against God. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, here's the crisis. Here's the punishment that they deserve and that they'll receive that the prophets talk about. And then the resolution comes, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, largely with messages of restoration. Now that sketch um, is a theory on the part of a guy named Paul House. I think it's convincing. I think it's helpful. Uh, I would not die on that hill. Um, but it is because the, the book of the 12 have not always been found in the same order. Uh, but the order that we have in our Bibles is um, is not just a new in- invention that the ESV or NIV put in there. It's It's been that order for a while. So Paul House's theory is this connection between all the books. I want to close here with some final tips for reading prophetic literature, some of which we've already gotten to. First, this is not on your handouts. Um, Think of prophecy as a syllabus explaining the outworking of God's plan rather than a simple prediction. You're not reading saying, oh, well, is this prediction going to come true or not? No. Like, listen, what is the prophet telling us about God's plan? What is the prophet telling us about redemption, about sin, punishment, and then the grace that underlies it all uh, so that restoration can also be a part of their message? Um, Always find uh, the first step in interpreting a prophetic oracle is to identify which category it it belongs to. Um, It's also important to distinguish between the message of the prophecy and the fulfillment of the prophecy. So um, Sennacherib coming in and invading... um, the uh, invading Jerusalem. Did he? Oh man, my history is rusty this late on a Sunday evening. Um, Sennacherib coming in and invading the land um, is not the inspired prophecy. The inspired prophecy is the message that the prophet gave on behalf of God. All right, and so there's a difference between the words of God on the mouth of the prophet and um, the the events that unfolded as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Um, the vision is not the message. This is really important. The vision that the prophets have is not the message, but it is the occasion for the message. The message that the prophets give are typically hidden, not hidden, that's not the right word, are typically in the vision. The vision is the means by which the prophets carry the message to the people that they're speaking to. Uh, We'll look at specific examples. Ezekiel, again, one with lots of those types of things. Um, And then it's important for us to remember that the prophet's message is not hidden in uninterpreted symbols. The prophet did not speak things that he did not expect his readers to understand. Now, there absolutely were fulfillments later that would have blown their minds, specifically in Jesus and in redemption. Um, but for the most part, the primary message was what the prophet and his audience would have understood God speaking to them in that day. And that's what we look for when we're reading the prophets. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we sing our last song? Questions, comments? Okay. This will be a fun series. Isaiah up next. Think we can do Isaiah in one night? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Dear gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and for the majesty of how you have written it and revealed it and inspired it and preserved it for us. We pray that we would be people of the book who seek 
to know deeply what you have said and to obey it. We thank you for these words of life, and we pray that um, we would um, be those who diligently return to them, uh, even as we take what we've learned today uh, and apply it to our lives, even this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.